Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. I'm Ollie Henderson. In today's show, I speak to Tim Oldman. He's the founder and CEO of Leesman, the world leader in measuring and analysing employees' experience in their places of work. Leesman helps organisations understand and measure how employees are supported in their workplace, which has led them to be the world's largest independent benchmark of employee workplace experience. Tim's also recently written a book, The Why Workplace, which explores the trends Leesman sees emerging and how it relates to business growth. As an aside, it's also a really nicely designed product, which won't be a surprise to anyone who knows the company who really pay attention to aesthetics and experience. So I love this conversation with Tim. We covered a whole host of topics related to the future of work and particularly the future of the workplace. Thanks as ever for listening to the show. If you enjoy this episode and haven't yet heard my conversation with Linda Gratton, which was released yesterday, make sure you check that out as well. I'll also include links to Tim's LinkedIn profile on the Leesman website in the show notes, as well as, of course, a link to pre-order my book, Work Life Flywheel, which is out in January. Finally, if you enjoy the show, I'd love it if you give me a rating. It's a great way for other people to discover it. Also, subscribe to the Future Work Life newsletter. I'll be writing about more of the themes we explore today over the coming weeks. For now, let's jump into my conversation with Tim Oldman. Tim, thank you for joining me this morning. What are the most profound changes that you've seen over the past couple of years in how and where we work and, and which are those that you think will just never go back to how they were before? Well, that's a, that's a hell of a question to open with. I suppose <laughs> the, you know, the profound change, um, the, you know, the secret insight is the one that's right in front of us, right? It's, 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 there's no hiding it that, that homes are pretty awesome places for lots of people to work from. For a myriad of different reasons, but I think that's that's that ain't that ain't changing anytime soon. So um, if if we think about where most people were in, let's say, sort of January, February, twenty twenty, millions of employees around the world not trusted to work remote from the office that was their sort of shackled place of work. That a matter of weeks later were gifted a laptop and trusted suddenly to work from home. And businesses survived because of it, and and businesses actually profited as a result of it. You know, and I think that that's the profound change that we've now. I don't think most organisations have still really got their heads around that. That as we thankfully at last sort of start to come out of uh, you know a period of global pandemic, that, that what does that actually mean when the average home supports the average employee better than the average office? So, what does the future look like? You know, with that knowledge now squarely in front of us. It's interesting the, the the language you use there because, of course, while the average home does support the average employee pretty well, it's when you get into the specifics of people's roles that you can't plan based on averages, can you? You start having to look at complexity of their role, the types of collaboration or interaction they have to have with others and the level of support they need. Where do those factors play into the decisions people are going to have to make about how they design work based on the research that you've done? Um, I think the, the first place is to your perhaps to your point, Ollie, is they've got to understand the individual. I think actually what we what we suffered from before was a, a series of sort of generic models that were assumed to be you know averagely good at doing what they're doing, and, and and probably you know a lot of them looked very good, so aesthetically they were pleasing to the eye, but whether they were really designed around individual team members, uh, colleagues, uh, as if you like as tools in organisational performance. I, th- I think most workplaces didn't come from that place. So they were, it was almost like you, you chose the envelope with your broker, you know, the, the building, and then you worked inwards from that outer skin of the envelope of the building. And eventually you accidentally tripped over an employee doing a day's work. Mm-hmm. 
And I think the future is one which is the opposite the way around. I think that you will start understanding the individual employees, how they interact with each other, how they interact with their customers externally, their other you know, vendors externally. And you start to develop an ecosystem around the individual. Uh, and, the, and if you like, the last constraining factor is the envelope of the building. And I think that's, that's exciting for anybody involved in process design, organizational design. So whether you come from an HR background or you, you come from a sort of process design or a, a, um, an architectural design perspective, I think getting that hierarchy reset so that it's employee first is is a is a pretty bright future once 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 people have reprogrammed themselves with that concept of coming at it from the 180 degree opposite direction then there's yeah. a there's an exciting future i think well you said earlier on that in some respects businesses have profited from individuals ability to be able to work from home and there's certainly been an eagerness understandably from some businesses to rid themselves of office space and sever those long-term leases do you anticipate though that actually once we reevaluate the requirements of the individual and the, in specific types of work that they're doing when they do come into the office actually there might be an argument to say that they will need that office space back to what extent will businesses actually reduce their footprint over time relative to how it was before? Um, the million dollar question, I guess, if you're a broker or your pension fund, um, is is that, you know, how much how much space will we need in the future? The, the risk here is averaging, right? That the, there will be some organizations who perhaps even need to grow their space, you know, as, as they continue on their um, hyper growth curves. And so it would be wrong for us to suggest that they could they could manage with less space. But equally, there are some you know, global corporations who we're working with who could quite easily shed 50% of their space without the employees feeling any detriment to the day's work. So mm. so I think it, it is about that sort of individual first and then the organization and really, you know, them, them doing the legwork, doing the things that the analysis depth, the depth of analysis that needs to be taken to before you can answer that question. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I don't think there's a, there's not a crystal ball that I can give you that's going to enable the um you know all of those with a vested interest in the place element of that equation knowing what their future looks like yeah oh that's a shame i thought you were just going to give us the answer to uh <laughs> to, to the, the shortcut no. but i think this is this is the problem i think is that there are people just looking for those shortcuts there's somebody yeah. you know, there, there, there are many many organizational leaders thinking that it's they can go back to the brokers they can go back to the real estate advisors and there's a cookie cutter model somewhere or a, or a process that will spit out an answer I think the answer, I'm afraid, is hard work that you've actually got yeah. to understand what your organization does at a very granular level and then build an infrastructure around it. Yeah, I think it's pretty good time actually to ask specifically what Leesman's research in factors in and the type of work that you're doing with clients, but also broadly how you're tracking trends in the market and specifically which areas you tend to focus on. Uh, another good question. If I start from the sort of back end first, in terms of trend analysis, um, we've always we've always seen that as a little bit of a dark art. You know that that it's it has so much risk in it, and then you get into the sort of company futurologists telling you what they you know they bravely predict the future is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's not an area that we we stray into comfortably. Let's just let's just put it that way. Um, where we have got longitudinal data, and we can see how things change, then I think it's right and proper to, to bring those to the uh, you know to the, the attention of our audiences. And, and I suppose the, the one that is blindingly obvious over the last two years is the massive increase in reliance on video conference technologies. 
you know, it 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 has seen a you know, substantial growth and is not going to reduce anytime soon. I think as we go back to a post-pandemic work start. Um, other than that, you know, there's not much else that we could give you as a general indicator across all data sources, across all industries, all territories, and all markets, because it, it then gets into very specific uh, trends that you see relative to different business groups and different employee typologies. So that, that's where I would say organizations should hold back and really, really think carefully about the media they're consuming. Look at your sample sizes if you're reading mm. research. You know, anything less than a thousand people, and you know, I would I would take it with a massive pinch of salt. Um, but in terms of our methodologies, the methodology stays the same for us. So that that detailed analysis of what the employee does in their role and the infrastructure they need in able, to enable them to do it. And the addition that we added in March 2020 was the ability to analyze employees' homes and analyze their uh, corporate offices. So we can do that direct comparison for the for which space is best at supporting which activities. I suppose the if we were trying to generalize the overall findings of that that sort of comparison between home and office, the, the standout is that any work activity that benefits from acoustic privacy is almost certainly better supported in most employees' homes than it is even in the best offices in the world. So that's the bit I think that that employees, employers and the design community have got to uh, sort of suck up basically that the workplaces are pretty poor on anything that that needs acoustic privacy one one thing that struck me was the sound observation about how a typical day in the office actually goes because and I've, I've certainly been guilty of this as well our natural inclination is to think go into the office for collaboration see those people that it's hard to work closely with on challenging tasks through a screen and certainly in bigger groups the research shows that there are diminishing returns pretty quickly when there's a large group of people on a video call so you know first thought just get people in the office to collaborate but the reality is throughout a working day you've got urgent requests from clients or you do need to just fit in a call or maybe even there's a call and you have this mixed mode worst of all worlds where you have some people sat in a room physically and you've got some people remotely However, that's the reality. You cannot just plan seven hours of collaboration in the office. So I'm interested what your research has either shown or perhaps how people are dealing with that reality where you have to, even in the absence of, what did you call it, acoustic? Hmm. What was the, the phrase? Privacy. Yeah. Acoustic, acoustic privacy. Exactly. Even in the absence of less than ideal acoustic privacy, it's just a reality. When people do come into the office, they're going to have to find those pockets of time where they have to have privacy, where they have to have quiet um, in order to be able to work and and how do you think that's going to play into these sort of ongoing discussion around developing a hybrid work model within different organizations well i think i think you've 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 you grabbed a little phrase there which i'm going to use in the future because I, I love that idea of pockets of time you know that, that i've not thought about it necessarily in that way before but if you think about your working day as pockets of time where each pocket is of different sort of elasticity and can change day to day you know most most knowledge-based roles are not so fixed that those pockets are evenly distributed and are the same size across a full working day. So that elasticity to the pocket is the thing that also requires a similar sort of elasticity to the spaces that you would go seek and find for each of those pockets. So if you think about um, activity-based working has been around for whatever, 15 years in its sort of current sort of uh, contemporary form, and its general premise is that uh, an activity-based work 
uh, ecosystem should empower the employee to go seek and find space that best supports the activity that they're doing at that, in your terms, pocket of time. Now, if we've, what we've done, I guess, over the last two years is that we've thrown in the home to being one of those locations in a way that two and a half years ago, for most organizations, it wasn't. Now, that, that throws up all sorts of socioeconomic challenges with things like, you know, we were talking about before we started recording, your cycle in, uh, you know, to the city for this morning. So, you know, your, your proximity to your workplace suddenly starts to play in much more or your workplace's proximity to your home starts to play into that equation much more. So we think about work days at the moment for most people as being more conscious about those pockets of time and how we diarize things. But if an employee only lives 15 minutes from the office, well, why, don't, why can't they then start to divide home and office inside a single working day as well? But if they live 20 minutes away, do they start to think differently? If they live 30 minutes away, do they think very differently? If they live an hour away, then you sure as hell aren't going to be starting to pocket your day with some parts of your day office based and some. So you're into whole day segments then. So I think this mm. is where we get into some really fun stuff about <clears throat> how roles change uh, in the future, perhaps, and how you might start to create more super specialisms in roles that are singularly home-based for the majority of their working week, whereas there might be other roles which are singularly or majority office-based because of their nature. So that's where it gets really interesting in terms of the futurology, yeah. because I don't, I don't think any of us really know. And that's what's fun about the future, right? That it's wholly unknown for us. And we can, if we approach it creatively with a sort of an open mind to, to how it might change work and task-oriented days, then it's open season, I think, for a more interesting work future for people. 100%. I'm intrigued whether, and again, I'm careful not to just cast general dispersions over masses of people here, but with that in mind, are there the right skills within organisations to be able to think about how, and I think you used the phrase in the in, in your, your book about reimagining work rather than optimising work. And I, I, you know, I, I like that idea about re, reimagining, but of course, there's certain dependencies when you're reimagining. And first of all, it's breaking free from past assumptions. And actually, that's quite difficult, and particularly when you're operating within a large organisation the analogy of a tanker ship being turned around is is true, although, of course, we demonstrated two years ago that we can become far more flexible far more quickly than we probably thought. But I'm interested whether those skills exist within companies, you know, and, and if they do, who's going to be driving that change? I mean, it, to an extent, it must come from individual managers in helping individuals design their days, but there has to also be some general strategy behind it or culture of it and i'm thinking does that come from hr does that just come from leadership roles within different departments of companies how do you see that you you're having these conversations with people who's driving that change and who needs to be engaged with it i think the the, the concept of whether we've got the right skills within organizations is really critical actually you're and you're right to sort of take us there in the discussion because it's my general sense is that the skills are there in people in leadership and management roles. It's just that they've got to apply the historic skills to a whole new set of challenges and problems and questions. Mm -hmm. So it's it's about sort of, I think, dialing up the creativity and the and the sort of, you know, no is not the first answer. So I think if, if we think pre-pandemic, um, you know, a, a, an employee, an average employee in an average organization approaching an average manager, you know, I'm having a fridge delivered. I don't know what time it's gonna be there. Is it okay if I work from home? We've got to accept that there are many organizations where no would have been the first answer. Take a day's leave. 
would have been the answer, right? Whereas I think today it's probably the opposite, that the majority of people would say, well, I'm assuming you're working from home anyway, so why the hell did you need to come to the office? So if we've seen that turnaround, how can we, how can we hold on to that sort of, if you like, management agility when no isn't the first answer when it comes to working remote um, and not just auto-rewind on um, the pre-pandemic work style. So I think, I think generally what we're seeing is that the CHROs are leading this because they are the group within an organization, certainly the larger organizations, who understand the sort of reprogramming and resetting of skills that are needed as organizations change. And so if organizations have been changed by, uh, by COVID, then a good to awesome CHRO is going to be driving down a sort of culture change within the organization that facilitates um, less sort of uh, presenteeism in the physical corporate workplace and more agility to, to place location choice. And then I think that's, that's where it could settle for most, that the, that the skills are there, They've just got to be reprogrammed so that people are more empowered to lead and manage in the way that they did in the crisis phase. And, and I also think, to your point, and I mentioned it in the book, that we, what we saw in March and April last year was organizations self-deliver logistics projects, which pre-pandemic, they would have outsourced to a leading management consultancy or an organizational design practice and given them two or three years to deliver. And we did it in two or three months, right? So taking ownership to what is ours and not subcontracting responsibility, I think is going to be something that, well, I would suggest organizations should hold on to that. Empower yeah. your people to be brilliant in adversity rather than subcontract your responsibility to others. Uh, yeah, I think there's a trend there around autonomy and trust, which would probably define those early days of COVID where you just, I mean, Frankly, if you didn't have trust in people just to get on and work it out, then you were doomed. And I think that has carried over. I mean, you see worrying signs from some CEOs who felt like they just had to make a stand and take a decision on, for example, returning to the office. But even that's, even then they've had to row back from a little. A little. So I certainly see from my research as well that you're starting to see that more autonomous approach within the organization, which is definitely positive. We talked earlier about uh, complexity. I'm interested how that plays into the appropriate place for people to do certain types of work. You know, are there some circumstances in which people's roles lend themselves better to working from home as opposed to coming and working in the office? And, and I guess this changes day by day, but are there just certain characteristics of a role which mean that you might want to orientate people towards working in a shared space versus working alone? So the, the research that we've been collecting since 2010 really clearly illustrates um, a, a couple of dimensions here around role. The, the simpler somebody's role is, so the lower the role complexity, the less things they need within the workplace in order to deliver that uh, at a level where they feel productive. The more complex somebody's role is, the more stuff they need. It's, a, it's a, you know, quite a simple phenomenon that, that as your role gets more and more complicated, Quite obviously, you're going to need more and more tools around you to be good in that role, to be outstanding and awesome in that role. Now, once we look at those two typologies, the, the high and the low uh, role complexity, what we've also seen is that those employees with low role complexity are the ones that tend to be better suited working from home. So they are able to do those narrow, super focused, super specialist roles 
pretty well when working remote because the home doesn't need all of the other things in it that it can't have that those people with the high role complexities need. So in those high activity uh, role complexity roles, you're going to see things like entertaining clients and customers, collaborating on focused work, collaborating on creative work. So it's, it's many more sort of dimensions to their work day. And let's face it, you know, you, you can't easily host a client at home. Uh, you can't easily collaborate with 30 or 40 people at home in a, in a sort of an open workshop type environment. So, so for some people, you know, the office is still going to be a, a critical part in them fulfilling their work obligations. But those, those, those people represent around 17 to 20 percent in a typical organization. So it is, it is the minority. You yeah. know, two thirds of people will have relatively simple roles. So that's where that, you know, when we were talking earlier about the, the, the volume of space that organizations might need in the future, if at the, of, if at the first stage you accept those employees who have space at home, and let's not forget, little caveat here, there are very many employees who do not have space at home that they can designate easily for work. But for those who do, if they find themselves in low uh, complexity roles, then their homes were gonna, you know, are going to be a great place for them to, to contribute in the future. Those 17%, 20% of people in high activity uh, complexity roles are always going to struggle if you make them solely remote. They need other things in their work day to enable them to work uh, at a level that they feel is productive. So from a practical point of view, for people who wouldn't have the luxury of your research and advice on this within their organization, I think there's probably an easy step there, which is to just review the requirements of everybody's role and the outcomes they're looking to achieve and then kind of work backwards from there to see what the desired combination of different activities would be in order to fulfill it. Presumably that would then give them a pretty good idea about how much time they should be recommending they spend in those different locations. It's funny what what tends to happen for for many many clients that we present our audit technique that we run across organizations you present those results back the first thing tends to be a surprise at how many people do some things that you didn't think they were doing and how many other people aren't doing stuff that you would expect them to be doing so one of our one of our activities within our profiling diagnostic is learning from others mm. and I, I can't remember how many clients I've presented to you where you present that data and they go like hang on a second whoa 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 seriously only that few people say they want to learn from others in my organization. What the hell is going on here? Or conversely, you might see a figure around uh, business confidential discussions. Uh, I presented to a, 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 a managing director of a, a well-known publishing firm, and he saw the length of, you know, the size of that number of people who said they have business confidential discussions. And it was almost like the opposite. It was like, whoa, hang on a second. Who do these people think they are? You know, like, I understand they're having conversations, but business confidential? No, 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 come on. Let's just really seriously get... And understand the sort of what the organization thinks it's doing on a daily basis. So that's the sort of first first pass is looking at that sort of profiling technique volumetrically. Um, and then, then you can start to understand the DNA of the organization. Then you can start to challenge it a little bit. And that where maybe there's some cultural realignment that's needed. And then you can go on and start thinking about the infrastructure needed to support them. That's an interesting point. I think you mentioned right at the end of your book about the importance of understanding the why behind the business and how that feeds into these discussions because actually that's as a sort of guiding principle a good idea to think about well actually you know again what are we looking to achieve here does that get communicated effectively to the staff so they understand their place in what we're looking to achieve as a business presumably that's 
what you mean by that. Mission and purpose can often sound like these kind of grand statements which come and really only apply to leadership. But actually, again, the businesses which have been most effective at transitioning over the past couple of years and responded to this sort of uncertainty and um, unpredictability positively often are those that through which these values are really clearly understood and communicated by everyone in the organization yeah i think it's a it, it, it's a challenge that we started to set clients um because many of them were coming to us and looking for answers and, and our our diagnostic technique is not designed to give you a sort of um you know cookie cutter paint by numbers office of the future solution that is not our role our role is there more as the sort of like the radiographer in medicine, right? We're there to give you the X-ray or the CAT scan that enables other consultants to take you on the path to recovery or to a, to a new future. But we started to find more and more clients who didn't actually know why they needed workplace in the future. So that's that's hence why the why the book is called Why Workplace is like, um, you know, what's your workplace? Why? If you know, if you're if you bump into your biggest investor, you know, at a social event, and they say like, geez, like second biggest cost. You know why? Why do you need workplace? And I and I think that's that's the answer that I'm looking for more and more leaders to be able to just offer in a you know like to turn on a hairpin and be able to say, yeah, because of this. Um, and I and, and if a, if a leadership team can't answer that question, you know we will have workplaces in the future because dot 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 fill in that blank, and then build an infrastructure and a, and a, a sort of you know conscious culture around the answer to that question. And it will be different across every organization and should be different organization to organization. So, you know, our clients in biotech and pharma will have a very different answer to that question to our clients in technology or an investment bank or a retail bank. And it's right and proper that those answers should be different and then expect the workplace solutions also to be different as a result. Clearly, the answer to that statement, why the reason why we need a workplace in the future will be different for every company. But again, if we can maybe make a few sort of general observations about uh, the value of those workplaces to companies and the individuals who work for them. So I mentioned earlier on, the first instinct is to say collaboration. But actually, there are many other reasons that you've identified which suggest that we're missing something perhaps from not being within the same physical space i'm interested if we could maybe explore these because they aren't the things that are immediately spring to mind but as soon as you mentioned them in the book mm. i nodded along because communicating through a screen while it has its conveniences can also it has very many limitations as well particularly in terms of interpersonal relationships i wonder if we could just quickly focus on some of those general positives which we do experience from being in the same place as each other i think the, the the positives are probably the easy ones to latch onto if you just sort of you know almost just close your eyes and try and remember what a week in the office looked like pre-pandemic you know and just pluck out the cool stuff the nice stuff the fun stuff that you come home at the evening and you know you, you'll have a smile on your face because one of those moments happened those pockets of time happened to you so they're probably the easy ones. I think what's more difficult for organizations is to acknowledge and accept the other stuff that you don't tend to remember, but has massively high value. And I think the sort of things I'm, I refer to there in the book and we've talked to clients about are, you know, simple things like the, I, I call it like the fairy dust that's sprinkled over employees every time they cross the threshold in the morning, you know, and they come into the office. There's something that makes your workplace different to the workplace next door. 
And that fairy dust is integral, I think, in maintaining culture in an organization. It says something about who you are, positive or negative. You know, there are some pretty grotty workplaces that do that to, to employees every day. But there are some amazing workplaces that reinforce it and energize people every day when they when they come to the workplace. So there's those types of things. There's also, you know, stuff that we don't tend to talk about that I think we should be talking about. So things like conflict, right? Most organizations have a bit of conflict in them at some point in the working week. And occasionally they need to happen. Sometimes they're because of, you know, cultural differences and things that, you know, shouldn't have been allowed to fester and arrive at. But sometimes they're healthy things. They're things that need to happen in order to enable organizations to swiftly pass a junction in its development. Now, if we're doing those on Zoom, I think they're very staccato and they're very sort of operationally stage managed into those, you know, 90 minute or one hour segments. And there's none of that sort of prep before then you, you know, you're walking into a meeting room, you're sort of deciding who sits where around the table in that site sort of standoff, or you bump into somebody at the tea point, the pantry on your way in and joke about the football results that, you know, the weekend before, or the fact that, how did Max Verstappen actually pull off that first place last, you know, at the weekend again? You know, you, you, there's a sort of social um, integration that happens before a meeting. You then go in, you do the bit of confrontational stuff, and it's face to face. You can see the eyes, you can read the body language, and then you diffuse on the way out. And you might, you know, a day yeah. later bump into somebody that was part of that, and it's slightly uncomfortable in the lift, but you get over it. But I think when we're all working from our own homes and you're working through this sort of sanitized rectangular screen and you've had one of those meetings and the inclination as soon as you come off is to start bitching and moaning about the meeting to one or two other people who are on your side in the meeting, then I think there's negativity that could start to fester inside organizations, which managers will have no line of sight to. And I think there's that type of stuff that worries me. There's also, I think, areas around mental well-being that if you're a good manager and you're, you can see somebody you can read the signs of somebody who is challenged or somebody who's feeling a bit down or somebody who's sort of taking themselves out of a group, which is almost impossible to do. I think even for the best managers, the most empathetic managers, um, when you're doing everything via the sort of this, this sort of remote portal way of working. So those are the types of things I would urge organizations to be more emotionally intelligent toward. Find and look for them and value your workplaces on those things that were really hard and remain hard to measure but are just as important as the sort of things that appear on timesheets or workflow diagrams. It makes me wonder about cadence of the time we spend in the physical environment. So thus far, most of the conversations have been, do we go in three days a week? Do we go in two days a week? Which days are right? I think the experience of organizations which have worked in a fully distributed way for years you take the automatics of the world or base camp these types of companies and this will presumably have to be true of those that have already decided to operate in a fully remote workforce that many of them will congregate but just far less frequently so they might organize a quarterly retreat somewhere to you know a particular resort or in some cases they're retaining the space but they're getting together less frequently say once a month i'm interested whether that can alleviate some of these challenges that we experience or whether you think there's a certain value in frequency to being in the same place so you know for example whether actually if we're getting together once a month or even once a quarter that does fill some of those gaps that we experience in terms of building those interpersonal relationships which would otherwise just disappear entirely if we if we operate in a fully remote fully remote strategy 
again, I think it sort of comes back to the personality of the people that create the personality of an organization as well. And it's, there's a bit of, I don't know what type of diagram you draw to represent this. I'm trying to visualize it in my own head, but you know how organizations of a certain type attract a certain type, right? So it's just like a, it's a sort of self-fueling self-prophecy of organizational culture, right? You, you know, I go out and you don't, you don't hire mimics of yourself, but you hire people who you are going to fit into your culture. And therefore the culture just becomes a sort of an extension of your brand and of your people and your mass and your, and your way of rolling, your way of engaging with customers and vendors around you. So if uh, we're only 40 or 40 odd people global, but, but if you're a 400 or a 4,000 or a 40,000 person organization, that starts to happen in sort of more, more cellular way. But I, I, I think if you were, so to speak, if you were born remote first, as an organization or office never, then your culture has been about attracting people who have a sort of uh, an ability to maintain that corporate ecosystem in that way. I think for an organization, even of our size, to suddenly switch and say, hey, guess what? No offices in the future. All the costs that we put into offices, we're going to spend on some really lavish quarterly away, whatever weeks, away days. I think my team would really struggle. And um, if you're a team of 400, I think they'd struggle. And I think if you were four, you know, and I just think it gets bigger and bigger and more complicated, the bigger you are to yeah. much suddenly make that shift. If you were formed as one thing and you developed around it, I think you can maintain that. I don't think there are many organizations who can suddenly switch. That said, what we are seeing is a number of pretty cool organizations. And I mentioned one in the book, Standard Chartered Bank are doing some incredible stuff with saying, um, you know, by 2025, 2026, we're going to probably have about half as much real estate as we had pre-pandemic in terms of global footprint. But the experience that you'll have when you come there is twice as good as it would have been back pre-pandemic. And we'll also try and make sure that the quality of the experience you have at home is never more than a couple of points on our scale away from the quality of space that would offer you in the workplace. And the economies behind that are pretty clever as well. We did some hypothetical maths around that. And if you half your space, you can afford to double the cost of the, uh, you know, the sort of facilities management, hospitality, experiential stuff that you offer in a workplace. And you still saved a shed load of money. So I think this is where we're going to get into some, some exciting journeys that some organizations will choose to go on where I think genuinely what they're going to say is they'll go to market, they'll go out to tender and they'll say, Give me the price for the best possible experience you dare to offer our employees in a workplace. And, and the market will think it's bonkers initially, right? But if we get a few brave organizations going out with that, and so actually what companies are bidding for is how cheaply can they provide the best possible experience that an employee could possibly want in a workplace on a daily basis? And then the employee is going to get up the next morning and say, like, I'm going to the workplace because it's an amazing place to be. It's like a five-star restaurant or a, you know, a five-star hotel every day in the office. Well, then it's, it becomes self-fulfilling in the desire to be in a place. So, but you've got to have a culture that supports that way of doing. Well, I like the sound of that. So it's a, it's a much better, it's a much better frame or a much better lens through which to think about the way we're approaching this rather than cost cutting, which we've just had to take over the past couple of years, but now certainly feels like the time to be thinking more proactively about it. So look, it's really great to hear about your work and, and I'll share some links to the website as well so people can find out more, but is there anything else that you want to leave us with or any sort of general, anything that we've missed in terms of what we've discussed today? 
I think I, we, we touched just before we started recording about your cycling, and I can see a, a pretty pretty cool machine behind you. But I think find find those moments, you know, because the thing for me in cycling is that it's really hard to concentrate on other stuff when you're cycling. I don't know about if it's the same for you, but the, for me, cycling is a mindfulness moment because you are totally focused on the thing of cycling. Um, and, you know, for me, in, in, in an, I tend to cycle off-road, that you've got to be really conscious of what you're coming up to, the obstacles ahead and thinking about it. So I think it's time for organizations to get very mindful about the process of work and how they support it amongst their, you know, their infrastructures. And if they start to lean into the idea of, you know, their workplaces being like one of the components on a high performance bike, you know, it's not, it's not the bike, it's a, it's, the, it's a component in the machinery of work. Then I think actually you start to get organizations approaching their conscious riding of that machine in a different way. And, and some of the really cool organizations we're around and there's some great um, case studies on our website of those that are really pushing that concept of the workplace being just another component to enable their athletic employees to be higher performers. Um, you know, nobody wants to get on their bike and be a slob, right? You get on your bike because you want to, you want to actually get somewhere faster, come out of it fitter, have some fresh air, have some mindfulness moments and enjoy the company of other riders or not, you know, but Work is not that dissimilar, I think, to a bike ride. It's about actually getting on, going faster, enjoying yourself, being around other people and sort of going on a, on a, on a journey. So um, I, I think the future of workplace is, is really exciting. It may well be that there is less workplace in the future, but hopefully the spaces that are out there are considerably better and, and, and more entertaining and more enjoyable than the spaces that were generally offered before. So good times, I hope. Brilliant. It's an optimistic note to finish on. So cheers, Tim. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Ollie. And that was my conversation with Tim Oldman. It rounds off a double header this week related to the future of work with two experts who I'm sure you'll agree have offered some amazing insights into what's happening out there at the moment and what's going to be happening in the future. So if you enjoyed it, as I said at the top, I'd love it if you could rate the show and make sure you subscribe to the newsletter as well. Next week, I've got another amazing guest. So until then, have a good one.